Welcome again, church, to our Wednesday night devotional refresh. We're walking with Jesus through the gospel of Mark, close-ups of Jesus through the lens of Mark's gospel. And the topic tonight, I think you'll see it as we work our way through this passage, is uh, discipleship, but discipleship in the surroundings of a conflicting culture. And I have four or five thoughts from uh, Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read verses 7 to 19, and I think the contrast I want you to see here, if I was giving this point a name, this first point, it would be large crowds, small following. I get that from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. I hope you have a Bible. Let's just study this together for a little while. Mark 3, 7. Jesus withdrew from his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd, okay, you're going to see that repeated a couple of times, a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, so this is a big crowd of people, they're pressing in on Jesus, and what's drawing the crowd is they see the stuff Jesus is doing. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. And he told his disciples, Jesus sees what's happening here, and he says, have a boat ready because of the crowd, lest they crush him. For he had healed so many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, you are the son of God. And look at verse 12. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. That's, Jesus doesn't want to play up to the crowd with that kind of a, 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 a big publicity marketed kind of kingdom. That's not why he wants the crowds following him. And he doesn't, and he knows, the demons know that as well. And they're out to mess things up for the way Jesus wants to build his kingdom, which we'll see in just, in just a minute. So the demons would cry out, you are the son of God, and he strictly ordered them not to make him known. And he went up on the mountain and called to him those whom he desired. And they came to him, and he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach. So the crowds, they see what he's doing. This little group, Jesus is sending them out, telling, preaching, a message. 15. And to have authority to cast out demons, he appointed the 12. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. Remember that incident in the Gospels. James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James, to whom he also gave the name Beorgenes, that is, sons of thunder. Verse 18, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus and Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. There really are some interesting contrasts in, in, in these verses. You have these Great crowds following Jesus, and they're following Jesus. Not a bad thing, but it's a relief from their suffering. Their sickness, demon possession, their problems, their trials. Jesus is ministering, and they come. 
And Jesus has great compassion on them. He doesn't sit down and say, I don't think your motives are great. He just touches people. He ministers to people. But in his heart, you see the contrast in the passage. Jesus knows he can't build his kingdom. He's going to be crucified, resurrected, ascended, physically gone. And he knows he can't leave his kingdom in the hands of a crowd. It's not going to work. The crowd longs for his touch, but they really have no idea about what his kingdom is about. He's coming to establish a kingdom. There's a cost to entering it. Interesting, in the Great Commission, we call it the Great Commission, Jesus, he says, go and make, go and make disciples of all nations. So there's this contrast between the crowd flowing to Jesus and the calling of a small band of committed followers to whom Jesus will be able to talk about the cost of discipleship, the message of the kingdom, the assignment of following him. So the crowd, they like to see what Jesus is doing, and they're there. The demons, they're, they're kind of the next group that's highlighted in our text. They know exactly who Jesus is, probably better than the crowd, they proclaim that in the 12th verse, but they have no intention of submitting to his lordship. So, so you, here you have an example, a twisted example, of profession of who Jesus is, and it's not inaccurate, but no intention ever of submitting to Jesus and following Jesus. And there's just nothing more demonic than that. So a claim without discipleship it's detestable in Jesus' eyes. So interesting, eh? You have, you have the crowds who want stuff from Jesus pressing in. You have the, the demonic realm who have no intention of following Jesus, but boldly yell out exactly who he is. And then you have Jesus who, who, who shows so clearly that his best means for changing the world is a small, committed band of followers. A small school of true learners, it was the best antidote to what, what could be the fickleness of crowds who could love Jesus and be against Jesus in the next moment. You see that over and over in the Gospels. No, a small band of followers who got the picture, who knew what was going on. A small group that could be discipled, could be disciplined, could be tracked. An uncommitted person would have a hard, I know you have Judas, but on the whole, an uncommitted follower would have a harder time in a small band of disciples. And even in the church, even in the church, a fairly large church like, like Cedarview, it's very easy just to track success in terms of numbers. Numbers aren't bad. You know, the, the early church grew very quickly. You have 3,000 converted on the day of Pentecost. This was not some tiny little group for very long. Churches grew very quickly, and there's, there's inspiration there. But the real work of the kingdom probably gets done best in a smaller setting, prayer groups, Bible studies, outreach teams. 
more accountability in a small group. Uh, discipleship is noticed in a small group. It's harder to um, disappear into the woodwork in a small group. And so you have that contrast. You have the crowd drawn to Jesus because they see the neat things that Jesus is doing. You have the demons who call out accurately who Jesus is, but they have no intention whatsoever of following and then you have Jesus, he, he, he picks a small group. He selects a small group, and they're going to be with him, close with him, in an accountable relationship with him. I like the contrast of those three groups in that text. Notice, secondly, when you read 16 through 19 in chapter 3, the striking thing here is these are very ordinary men. 16, he appointed the 12, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, we know Simon, how he, the blunders, the impulsiveness. James, the son of Zebedee, John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boagenes, that is, sons of thunder. I don't know why that was, a, a temper. We don't know. 18, Philip, Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew and Thomas. Remember Thomas? James, the son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon, the Cananean, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Why? Why? Why does Jesus choose such, such ordinary people? And when we looked at the calling of people like Matthew in previous studies, why? What was on God's mind? And I think, I think you get a description of the thinking in the writing of the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. In chapter 1, 1 Corinthians 1, 26 to 31, Paul still says, For consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Maybe some were, but not many, he says. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Okay, so why? 27. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and debased in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. He's going to show how upside down this world system is. 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. He is the source of your life in Christ Jesus whom God made our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, our redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So it seems, and you see it right from this first band of followers, it seems that God will go to almost any length to wean us from any uh, inclinations toward pride and self-sufficiency and self-esteem. The greatest lesson from the master is, is this, that the real work of the kingdom, the real work of the kingdom always will be done with two distinctive marks. A, it will be done primarily in common, unobtrusive ways. Uh, then and now, the real message of the kingdom. 
I don't mean just some of the stuff you see on, on TV with the big shows, but the real work of the kingdom doesn't market incredibly well. There aren't a lot of really successful TV evangelists talking about dying to self and not caring about the riches of this world and laying down our lives for Christ. The mass media will never, never usher in an age of spiritual renewal. It touches many, but it transforms very few. And secondly, the, this is important. The, the real agents for change in Christ's kingdom will rarely be the superstars and the pastors. That's because our witness is almost expected. But the average person, recruited, trained, seriously committed to using his daily activities to follow Jesus, that person, that person was the one who can change the world. So this, this ragged band of ordinary followers, it outlasted the Roman Empire. So uh, what I'm saying to you is never underestimate your daily witness to Christ. Yours is the one that counts the most. I said that. Yours is the one that counts the most. You are the salt of the earth. Point number three. Look at some of the sources of opposition. Remember the title I gave to this teaching, Discipleship in a Conflicting Culture. So under this third point, consider some of the sources of opposition now to the establishment of this kingdom and Jesus. It's in Mark 3. I'm going to read 20 to 30. Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. Look at 21. And when his family heard it, this is his family, they went out to seize him, to take hold of him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. That's great, eh? Your family. So there's opposition there. 22, here's another source. And the scribes, who came down from Jerusalem, were saying he is possessed by Beelzebul and by the prince of demons. He casts out demons. And he called them, that's Jesus, he called them and, and said to them in parables, how can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. 27. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. And then indeed he may plunder his house. Now look at these words. They get talked about a lot. 28. Truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. And, he, and then Mark explains, for they had said, that's the scribes, he has an unclean spirit. Jesus, he has an unclean spirit. I'll get to that, but let's just look at some things in terms of the sources of opposition here. From his own family, that's in 20 and 21. So the family sees <clears throat> the crowds just sort of snowballing around Jesus. 
Things seem to be getting out of hand. It's hectic. It's chaotic. It's a scary experience. They were used to uh, milder, quieter circumstances than were uh, revolving now around Jesus. And they said, he's out of his mind. This brother of ours, Jesus, he's, he's crazy. And then it's interesting that Jesus actually predicted that as people would follow him, remember he called this band of disciples and he, and he told them, go and make disciples. What happens as disciples decide to follow Jesus? Well, there's going to be opposition. Jesus experienced it from his own family and Jesus predicted that there'd be times when as people followed Jesus, they would experience ridicule, rejection from their own family members, father against son, brother against sister. Opposition. Secondly, you see it in this passage, so first from his family and then from the scribes. They're, they're, uh, they're losing the security of their own uh, religious position and authority as more and more people are astounded at what Jesus says and what Jesus does, and they feel the threat of that. And interestingly, under the, under the pressure, the insecurity that they're feeling as, as their power base shifts away from them, the kind of insecurity that they feel, it forces them, they would rather line themselves up with Satan than with Jesus. And so they look at Jesus and they say, it's just by the power of demons that you're doing this. In verse 28, and that leads him to talk about the unpardonable sin. Unbelief is not, it's not primarily an intellectual problem as much as it is a spiritual problem and a moral problem. I mean, the atheist, the atheist can't find God for the same reason a criminal can't find the police. He's not looking for him. Now, while Jesus, you know, unbelief is such a dangerous thing, it hardens the heart. Things get worse inside instead of better. And, and, and Jesus is talking about a culmination point. He doesn't technically say they've committed the unpardonable sin, but he warns them of the danger of it. I know whenever you talk about the unpardonable sin, there are always, there are always devout Christians who, of a tender heart and conscience, they think, well, I wonder, have I committed that? Have I committed that? Have I done this? And all I can say to you is, is, uh, you should take heart in the fact, the very, the very fact that the thought frightens you is the best evidence that you haven't committed it. The person who commits the unpardonable sin doesn't care about the unpardonable sin. They've, they've drifted beyond the point of having a heart reachable by the Spirit of God because they've drifted beyond the realm of being able to repent. The unpardonable sin is not the same as just backsliding. Maybe you know someone who's drifted away from God. The unpardonable sin is, uh, it's an official sin. It's, it's something proclaimed out loud, something said out loud. That, that, that work of Christ, that's just demonic. So it isn't just a casual drifting from the Lord, a backsliding. 
that people can repent of and turn from. It, it marks a, an end point, a destination, where the heart has become hard, the profession is made, the statement is made, and no one cares, and the heart isn't concerned. Point number four. When you talk about the unpardonable sin, it's unfortunate to me that people go to the second part of the statement and ignore the wide mercy of the first part of the statement. When you look at that 28th verse, there's a, there's a vastness in the mercy of God. Truly, truly, I say to you, all sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. If you can repent, you can be forgiven. People sometimes get so concerned about the unforgivable sin that they miss the beautiful promise. There's promise before there's warning. You need never doubt God's mercy. Lying, adultery, homosexuality, abortion, child abuse, drug addiction, Satanism. Never let the devil sow fear and doubt in your heart. You have not slipped beyond reach. If you care in your heart, repent, come back to Christ. All sins will be forgiven. Five, enjoying the love of God is what I want to talk about under this fifth and final point. You see it in verses 31 to 35. And his mother and his brothers came. Jesus was not an only child. I know some some churches teach that. He wasn't. His mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. Look at Jesus' strange answer here. He answered them, Who is my mother and my brothers? I remember when Jesus Christ Superstar came out and they make this look like some delirious question, Jesus, not knowing what's going on. It's not that at all. Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. What is Jesus saying? Jesus is describing the kind of love that he has for those who follow him. How much do you matter to Jesus? That's the issue in this question. He is, he is, how much do you love, how much do you love your brother, your sister, your husband, your wife, your mother, your father? How much do you love them? And Jesus is saying that pales, that pales in comparison to how much he loves his family of followers. He is, here is, uh, here is how strongly committed Jesus is to you. He loves you more than you think he loves you. His love for you is different from your love for him. Your love for him, my love for him, it wanes. We, we, we walk by faith and not by sight. And our feelings of devotion, we're not always able to sustain the same level. Our love for him, uh, we do our level best. But, it, but it's a variable thing. And every honest Christian knows it. But his love for you isn't. His love for you is unchanging. His love for you is a, a permanent, undying, unending love. They're truly members. Truly members of his family. Jesus is not lightly committed to you. That's the lesson there. 
What a great text. It's, I hope you're enjoying it as much as I am. I love just going through, remember Paul says, beholding the glory of our Lord are transformed from one degree of glory to another. And that's what happens. You, you see the beauty and the glory of Jesus and it, and it does something in your own heart. Incrementally, one degree at a time, there's a glorious change that comes into our lives beholding the glory of Jesus. Let's pray. We do love your word. And what we love best is the way all of it, all of it, Old Testament, New, but especially these Gospels, all of it is designed to set our minds and hearts on the glory of Jesus. Thank you for your great love for us. Thank you for your plan to work with ordinary lives to build your kingdom. And thank you for the way the truth of your word can build glory into our hearts. And so even while we're apart, we take these moments, we soak our minds. You have the words of eternal life. There's nowhere else to go. And so we rest our hearts and minds there in Jesus' name. Amen. Sunday morning, we're going to be looking again at keeping your joy, the heartfelt theology of an isolated prisoner, how our lives are to magnify Christ in this world. Paul gives some specific ideas about how our lives are to magnify Christ in this world. And then Sunday night, 6.30, when life seems to swallow you whole, and we're going to look at the God of a second chance. I mentioned... Uh, last Sunday morning, how Rainy and I have just found for ourselves that we're, we're trying more and more to open up our Bibles and study at the designated church times. I know you can watch whenever you want YouTube during the week, but we're trying not to build habits into our lives that'll make it seem inconvenient when we have to come back here at 10 o'clock and set times. So do it together as much as possible. Set aside the specific times, especially on the Lord's day, and make it a priority to feed your heart and minds around the Word. God bless you, church. Stay devoted to the Word. Love one another.